Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, domestic violence, gun violence, suicidal ideation, and sexual assault. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help on mental health and domestic violence, visit spotify.com resources. Richard Biegenwald tightly gripped the steering wheel, watching the cold December northeastern night fly by. He was going way too fast on the highway, but he didn't give it a second thought. It was 1958, and the 18-year-old had a devil-may-care attitude. He and his passenger, James Sparnroft, were out that night looking for trouble. They'd boosted the car a few hours ago in New York City. Now they were headed south, nowhere in particular. Just two days before, the pair had held up a convenience store, looking to score some cash. It ended with a little money in their pockets and the shopkeeper's death. Tonight could go the same way. It all depended where the evening took them. The pair should lay low, but Beganwald liked tempting fate. Beganwald pressed his foot to the floor as the car flew over the blacktop. Then, just past the city limit sign of Salisbury, Maryland, Beganwald saw flashing red lights in the rearview mirror he took his foot off the gas and pulled onto the shoulder of the highway. The officer approached, flashlight in hand, gun on his hip. But Biegenwald wasn't nervous as he clutched a sawed-off shotgun on his lap. The cop wouldn't know what hit him. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Thursday, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're discussing the crimes of Richard Biegenwald, the Jersey Shore thrill killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In today's episode, we'll explore how Beaconwald's criminal behavior began when he was just five years old, landing him in a series of institutions that all proved incapable of treating him. In part two, we'll explore the details of Beaconwald's eventual murder spree across the Jersey Shore and how a young woman he groomed as his accomplice played a key role in his downfall. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. 
This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When we try to understand the twisted journey of a serial killer, we often start by looking at their past. For true crime fans and criminal profilers alike, a murderous childhood can reveal the psychological, environmental, and social factors that drove their horrific actions. Some theories even suggest there are so-called childhood red flags, which predict if someone will commit violence later in life. But it's rare to find full-blown criminal tendencies in someone's childhood, much less when the child is barely school age. Born in the summer of 1940, Biegenwald grew up in Staten Island, New York, in a household starting to disintegrate. His father, Albert, drank heavily, and by the time Biegenwald was old enough to talk, Albert had become bitter and abusive towards his wife, Sally, verbally at first and then physically. As their only child, Biegenwald likely sensed how unstable things were, whether we witnessed the abuse or not. And so, it's perhaps unsurprising that he seemed to develop severe behavioral problems at a young age. It's not clear exactly how often those problems manifested, but we do know that before Biegenwald turned five years old, a psychiatrist diagnosed him with schizophrenia. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Childhood onset schizophrenia is very rare, and the term typically refers to schizophrenia diagnosed in a child of 13 or younger. In children under six, the condition is especially hard to confirm because many of the symptoms can mimic a developmental delay. It's unclear exactly what symptoms Biegenwald displayed or if the diagnosis at the time had the same characteristics of a childhood onset schizophrenia diagnosis today. Medical reports at the time described his behavior as bizarre, but don't offer much beyond that. We know Biegenwald was a withdrawn and irritable child. And instead of responding to this with compassion, it seems his father reacted with abuse. It became a vicious cycle. Albert's violence towards his son likely exacerbated his psychiatric symptoms. And as Biegenwald's behavior worsened, so did the abuse. Then things came to a head. At just five years old, Biegenwald tried setting his family's house on fire. While some might think this just sounds like a kid playing with matches, reports about this incident all make it sound like a deliberate act. His parents certainly saw it as attempted arson. They had their son admitted to a children's psychiatric hospital in Rockland County, about 45 miles away. Biegenwald spent the next three years there as an inpatient, and was only permitted to leave every so often, largely for a weekend visits home. 
His parents surely hoped that the hospital could treat him, but it didn't seem to improve things. Supposedly, during his years there, Biegenwald's behavior became more antisocial, and he was often cruel and aggressive to his fellow patients. By age eight, Biegenwald was reportedly drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, and gambling. This sounds so ludicrous that it's tempting to dismiss it as hearsay, especially since it's unclear how he could access any of these vices inside the hospital. In any case, the hospital stay wasn't having the intended effect. In September of 1949, Biegenwald's mother transferred him to Bellevue Hospital, infamous for its psychiatric wing. She thought that if anybody could handle her tearaway son, Bellevue could. There was no dedicated children's psychiatric ward, but it's possible Sally Biegenwald reasoned that her son already had grown-up vices. Perhaps he should be treated as an adult patient, too. The doctors at Bellevue concurred with the earlier diagnosis of childhood schizophrenia and also noted that Biegenwald was hyperactive and fixated on fantasies about death. He told one physician, I could jump out of that window and then it would all be over. Doctors proceeded with an intensive course of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. ECT was in its heyday in the late 1940s and was used to treat a number of psychiatric conditions, including schizophrenia. The treatment involved administering electric currents to the brain, causing a brief surge in electrical activity, which is generally known as a seizure. ECT can be effective, but in Biegenwald's day, it was often done without regard to the patient's safety and even used as punishment. The procedure could therefore be horrific. And remember, Biegenwald was under 10 years old. Today, most guidelines advise against using ECT on children younger than 11, largely because the long-term effects on a developing brain are unclear. But at Bellevue in 1949, it seems no such rules existed. Biegenwald underwent a total of 20 ECT sessions in the space of six weeks. After this rigorous treatment, doctors deemed him well enough to leave the hospital and discharged him. However, Biegenwald wasn't considered ready to rejoin society just yet. Instead, he was sent to a reform school just north of New York City, which promised to rehabilitate troubled boys through fresh air and farm work, while still offering medical supervision for those who needed it. But the young Biegenwald showed no interest in rehabilitation. Even in this setting, surrounded by troubled peers, he stood out as a rebel. He made at least one attempt to escape the school, and during his weekend visits home to Staten Island, he began stealing money from his parents. Even so, doctors eventually discharged Biegenwald from medical supervision. When he was 16, he was sent home to live in Staten Island full-time. Things there had changed. His parents were divorcing. Their long, troubled marriage had finally ended. This meant that Albert was gone, and neither Biegenwald nor Sally had to fear his abuse. After over a decade in institutions and reform schools, Biegenwald enrolled at a local public school. But it wasn't without its challenges. Biegenwald had never been interested in studying. Any enthusiasm he might have had for regular school soon faded. He managed to graduate the eighth grade and started attending high school. But by then, he was again becoming consumed by self-destructive urges. He stole cars and was arrested for it more than once. After just six months, he dropped out of high school. He wasn't interested in studying. But Biegenwald was starting to realize he craved more than anything was the adrenaline rush that came with breaking the rules. Now at 18, there was nothing left to hold him back. And without those guardrails in place, 
there was no telling how much damage he could do. In a moment, Biegenwald's disastrous first attempt at armed robbery. Hi, it's Sarah Turney from the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. In honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, we've been showcasing a series of impactful stories we think you should hear. This week, I'm teaming up with the Cold Cases podcast to examine one of the most high-profile cases in U.S. history, the boy in the box. For nearly 70 years, people all over the country wondered, who is America's unknown child? How did he die? And where is his family? A forensic breakthrough would ultimately tell us his name, Joseph Augustus Sorelli. But as you'll come to find out, that was just one piece of the mystery. Catch this incredible episode this Thursday on Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. Now back to the story. In 1958, 18-year-old Richard Biegenwald left New York for the first time in his life. Maybe to celebrate dropping out of school, he took a trip to Nashville, Tennessee. It's not clear why Biegenwald chose Nashville or what he planned on doing there. All we know is that while there, he stole a car and went on the run. The authorities caught up with him hours later in Kentucky. Biegenwald was quickly convicted and sentenced to several months behind bars at a juvenile detention center. Having spent more than half his life in various facilities, this didn't faze him. And as soon as he was released in the winter of 1958, he returned to Staten Island, moved back into his mother's house, and returned to his old ways. That December, he teamed up with an accomplice, 18-year-old James Sparnroft, and began planning an armed robbery. One night that month, the pair stole a car and drove north from Staten Island and into the city of Bayonne, New Jersey. They headed to a local deli and parked outside. Biegenwald got out of the car, holding a sawed-off shotgun. Sparnroft stayed behind as the getaway driver. When Biegenwald walked into the store, it looked empty. The cash register up front was deserted, or so it seemed. The owner, 47-year-old Steven Slodowski, was putting away some items under the counter and didn't notice the intruder right away. When he stood up, he saw Biegenwald at the front of the store, pointing the shotgun directly at him. Biegenwald ordered him to open the register. Slodowski refused. He had a day job as an attorney for the Bayonne City Prosecutor and wasn't easily intimidated by criminals. Biegenwald floundered at first. This confrontation wasn't going as planned, but he didn't stop to think for long. He quickly fired at close range, hitting Slodowski in the chest and killing him. He then grabbed Slodowski's wallet and fled. He made no attempt to get out of the register or the cash box beneath it. Once he was outside the store, Biegenwald stopped. For some reason, he seemed to decide he wasn't quite finished. He turned, raised his shotgun, and fired through the front window of the store, attempting to hit Slodowski again. But he missed. 
Then, Biegenwald quickly jumped inside the getaway car as Sparnroft sped away into the night. Sparnroft was panic-stricken and likely furious with his accomplices bungling of the plan. Biegenwald had managed to steal just $100, and he left behind a bloody crime scene. But Biegenwald wasn't concerned. As far as he knew, he'd shot a deli owner in a holdup. He had no idea he'd murdered a city prosecutor, which prompted an immediate and robust police response. Biegenwald and Sparnroft abandoned their getaway car on the drive home, and within hours, the cops tracked it down. But since the vehicle was stolen, they couldn't glean much information from it, just that it had been taken in Staten Island. Undeterred, authorities went door-to-door throughout Staten Island, questioning residents in the hopes of finding a lead. Biegenwald and Sparnroft got wind of this and decided to get out of town. They acquired another car and drove south from New York, cruising through New Jersey and Pennsylvania. This time, Biegenwald was behind the wheel, and being the thrill-seeker he was, he was going way over the speed limit. After more than three hours of driving, they reached the town of Salisbury, Maryland, around 1 a.m., There, a cop spotted their car careening along the highway and pulled them over. As 42-year-old Sergeant Eldridge Heyman approached, he gestured for Biegenwald to roll down his window. Inside, Biegenwald was calm. Slowly, he pulled his shotgun onto his lap, then lowered the window. He waited until Heyman was right alongside the car. Then, he turned sharply to his left, pointed the gun, and fired. As Heyman crumpled to the ground, Biegenwald errantly fired again and floored it. Miraculously, the shotgun blast only grazed Heyman's cheek, so he wasn't seriously injured. He quickly radioed for backup and gave a detailed description of the car and its occupants. The logical choice would have been for Biegenwald and Sparnroff to get out of town as fast as possible. They likely assumed that they'd killed Heyman, and as cop murderers, surely knew they'd be pursued mercilessly. But an hour later, they were still in Salisbury, perhaps trying to find a spot to abandon their car. Around 2 a.m., Police Lieutenant Carol Sermon spotted the pair driving on the outskirts of town. He pulled them over and got out of his patrol car. This time, Biegenwald didn't wait. As Sermon walked towards him, Biegenwald leaped out of the driver's seat and fired his shotgun, striking Sermon in the leg. Sermon returned fire, and Biegenwald took a bullet to the cheek. He dropped to the ground in pain, his shotgun falling beyond his reach. It's unclear what Sparnroft was doing during all of this, but when he saw Biegenwald down, he surrendered. After just two nights, their ill-conceived spree had ended. The authorities in Maryland soon linked Biegenwald and Sparnroft to the Sladowski murder in Bayonne. Sparnroft quickly turned on Biegenwald in custody telling the police that his accomplice had killed Slodowski. In the end, prosecutors charged both Biegenwald and Sparnroft with the murder. They pleaded no contest, which meant that there would be no trial. Instead, in the summer of 1959, authorities extradited them to New Jersey for sentencing. During that hearing, Biegenwald's attorney, Alan Kraut, pleaded for leniency. He pointed to Biegenwald's long history in various institutions and argued that his client needed medical treatment. This didn't entirely sway the judge. Given that Biegenwald had seemingly made little progress despite years of psychiatric care, the argument might have actually worked against him. In the end, Biegenwald avoided the death penalty, but the judge sentenced him to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 15 years. Sparnroft got 25 to 30 years. 
In the summer of 1959, 19-year-old Biegenwald arrived at Trenton State Prison. Just three years after being given his freedom, he was right back in another institution. And this maximum security facility was by far the toughest place he'd been. Yet it's possible that for Biegenwald, a highly restricted life behind bars felt more manageable. After all, he'd spent his formative years in similar places, with strict rules, a regimented daily schedule, and limited movement. These things were familiar. There's a term for this, institutionalization, or a chronic state caused by incarceration, where inmates struggle to adjust to life without the structure and limitations found behind bars. For people like Biegenwald, incarcerated at an early age, institutionalization may be even more likely. On the other hand, Biegenwald seemed uneasy with the ordinary world from a very young age and exhibited severe antisocial behavior before he was even five years old. It's therefore hard to separate the effects of incarceration from his pre-existing troubles. Either way, Biegenwald soon got a reputation as somebody not to be messed with in prison. Jailers sent him to solitary confinement several times after he fought with other inmates. When he was 20, Biegenwald was involved in a fight so severe that he spent 11 months in solitary confinement. Details about this incident aren't available, but regardless of what happened, this was a very severe punishment. Solitary confinement is among the most psychologically damaging things that can happen to an incarcerated person. In fact, the United Nations recognizes any stint longer than 15 days as a form of torture. According to a 2006 paper published in the Washington University Journal of Law and Policy, solitary confinement can cause a specific psychiatric syndrome characterized by symptoms like hallucinations, panic attacks, intrusive thoughts, and delirium. There's also evidence to suggest that parts of the brain physically shrink as a result of prolonged isolation. While solitary confinement can be dangerous for anyone, it's especially so for people under 21 and those with pre-existing mental illness. For Biegenwald, it was potentially disastrous. Today, some states have strict regulations on using solitary confinement in prisons, especially among young inmates. But in the early 1960s, few guardrails existed. There aren't a lot of details available about Biegenwald's mental state during his time in prison, but we can draw some conclusions from what we know about his physical appearance. He became increasingly disheveled and started chain-smoking, reportedly getting through three packs a day. But it seems that his behavior improved as he matured. In the spring of 1967, when Biegenwald was 26, authorities transferred him to Rahway State Prison, a mixed security facility. Biegenwald took this as a hopeful sign. He would be eligible for parole in a few years. If he kept his head down and stayed out of trouble, he could get out. As far as we know, he became a model prisoner at Rahway, so much so that when a riot broke out in 1971, Biegenwald was conspicuously absent from it. For the first time in his life, he had a goal and was determined not to let his appetite for chaos get in the way. Eventually, his discipline paid off. In June 1975, authorities released 34-year-old Richard Biegenwald on parole, after almost 17 years behind bars. He moved back into his mother's house on Staten Island and tried to build a life for himself. He found work painting houses and repairing cars and discovered he enjoyed making an honest living. To everyone who knew him, Biegenwald seemed transformed. 
While prison had noticeably aged him, it also made him more mature and focused. He was soft-spoken, articulate, and exuded a quiet confidence. He used that confidence when he met 16-year-old Diane Marcellus, a bright honor roll student at a New Jersey high school. The pair began dating. It's unclear if he was unable to meet women his own age or was uninterested in doing so, but a 34-year-old man dating a teenage girl is sinister and predatory, regardless of the underlying reasons. It's unclear how much Diane knew about his past, but the immense power imbalance in their relationship was surely a deliberate choice on his part. This suggests that Biegenwald was not as reformed as he appeared on the surface. Beneath it all, he was the same man he'd always been, with the same dark impulses. And as he adjusted to freedom, thoughts of death crept back into Biegenwald's mind. They weren't overwhelming, not yet. But soon, they began taking up more of his attention. And now, it wasn't his own death he was imagining. Up next, Biegenwald finds himself in more criminal trouble. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In mid-1977, a young woman was standing alone near the West Shore Expressway in Staten Island. She had her thumb outstretched trying to hitch a ride. To protect her identity, this young woman's name isn't available, so we'll call her Lisa. That night, a man saw Lisa and pulled over. He rolled down his car window and smiled at her. According to author John O'Rourke, after exchanging a few words, Lisa hopped into his car. The man drove away. For a while, they chatted amiably. But at some point, the atmosphere shifted. Lisa seemed to get nervous. Out of nowhere, the driver stopped the car. He grabbed hold of her and began trying to rip her clothes off. She fought back and was able to struggle out of his grip. Heart pounding, she grabbed the door handle and leapt out into the darkness, running as fast as she could into the undergrowth beside the car. We don't know if the assailant tried chasing her, but if he did, Lisa still got away. She fled and went straight to the Staten Island police. There she gave a detailed account of what had happened. Based on her description, and presumably his criminal history, the police identified Biegenwald as their suspect. They issued a warrant for his arrest on suspicion of attempted rape. But Biegenwald somehow got wind of this and fled before the police could catch up with him. His movements throughout the next few years of his life are unclear since he was trying to lay low. Although we know that he and his teenage girlfriend Diane continued seeing each other even as he was on the run. In fact, things were so serious between the couple that they got married. That might explain why Biegenwald didn't go far. In fact, when the police finally did track him down, he hadn't even left New York City. It's unclear what led to a breakthrough in the long-stalled case, but in June 1980, the police finally arrested Biegenwald at a party in Brooklyn and sent him back to jail. But the authorities' case for attempted rape soon ran into a hurdle when, supposedly, the victim failed to pick Biegenwald out of a police lineup. Though lineups are still widely used, they can be a flawed means of identifying suspects. 
This is mainly because traditional lineups are subject to confirmation bias, which describes the tendency to interpret information through the lens of what we already expect to be true. In other words, if a victim goes into a lineup expecting to see their attacker among the faces presented, they're more likely to identify someone with confidence, even if their attacker isn't actually there. This was shown to be true in a seminal 1984 study at University of Alberta. There was another factor that could have thrown Lisa off. Before the lineup, Biegenwald had shaved his head while locked up, radically changing his appearance. To try and salvage things, the authorities had all the men in the lineup wear wool hats to cover their heads. But this in itself would have made the identification process much more difficult. Given this, and the fact that three years had passed, it's no surprise that Lisa didn't identify her attacker. With little physical evidence, prosecutors dropped the attempted rape charge, and Biegenwald walked free. After so many years on the run laying low, he was liberated. And for him, that could mean only one thing, trouble. Diane had stood by her new husband through all of this. Now, the couple settled into an apartment in Asbury Park, a beachfront city on the New Jersey shore. In high school, Diane had been an honor roll student. But now, any ambition she had seemed to vanish. Her only connection to the outside world was her job as a cashier at a local pharmacy. But even that became tenuous as she began using recreational drugs and stole prescription medication from work. Whether that was for consumption or to sell, we don't know. But to Biegenwald, this criminal behavior seemed to be a bonding activity. Another case in point was his relationship with Darren Fitzgerald, a friend he'd made in prison. Fitzgerald had also been released recently. And in 1981, he moved into the apartment across from Biegenwald and Diane's. Biegenwald and Fitzgerald shared an interest in chaos and destruction. They spent hours together in the basement of their apartment complex, building bombs and weapons. They also kept a venomous snake down there and extracted its venom. The end game of all this isn't clear. Allegedly, the pair planned to poison a group of people en masse at a local mall, among other dark schemes. But what is clear is they talked a lot about death. That fall, as the days started to get shorter, it was all Biegenwald could think about. Until one evening, thoughts weren't enough. On Halloween night, 17-year-old Maria Chialella left her family's house in Brick Township, about 20 miles south of Asbury Park. She told her father she'd be at a party and would be home around midnight. True to her word, she left around 11.30 p.m. and made her way home. Driving on Route 88, Biegenwald noticed Maria walking on the road. As soon as he did, he pulled over and drove slowly alongside her. He asked if she needed a ride. Rather than face the rest of her dark, cold walk home, she said yes. What happened next is unknown. But at some point, Maria likely sensed something was wrong. Perhaps Biegenwald started driving in the wrong direction, away from her destination in Brick Township. Or maybe his tone shifted in a way that made her skin crawl. When Biegenwald pulled the car over in a secluded area, miles from civilization, she may have tried to run. But Biegenwald caught Maria. He shot her and then watched her die. Afterward, he considered leaving her body where it was. However, he wasn't quite as reckless as he used to be. He had no desire to return to prison, and he knew he was already on the police's radar. He had to hide Maria. He put her in the trunk of his car and started driving, but he didn't go home. Diane had some awareness of his criminal activities, 
but bringing a body to their place would presumably be a step too far. Besides, they lived in an apartment. There was nowhere to hide it. So Biegenwald did the only thing he could think of. He drove to his mother Sally's house in Staten Island. Just as he'd hoped, all the lights were off and she was fast asleep. It was perfect. Biegenwald snuck into his mother's backyard and dug a shallow grave. Then he retrieved Maria's body from his trunk and buried her. As he threw shovelfuls of dirt into the earth, gradually covering Maria up with soil and mulch, Biegenwald felt a new kind of thrill. It wasn't the adrenaline rush he'd experienced from past crimes. It was calmer, less frantic, and more satisfying. It was the feeling of getting away with murder. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with part two, where we'll discuss the string of horrific crimes that earned Beganwald the nickname Jersey Shore's Thrill Killer. For more information on Beganwald, amongst the many sources we used, we found John O'Rourke's book, The Jersey Shore Thrill Killer Richard Beganwald, extremely helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Stacey Nemick is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Emma Dibdin, edited by Robert Tyler Walker and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Kitovich, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Greg Polson and me, Vanessa Richardson. 